0: Well good evening, happy Tuesday evening to each of you. It is good for me to be with you one final time in this series here at Midway. I appreciate so much, again, the opportunity afforded me by the leadership here uh, to come and to be a part of this endeavor. And again, as I mentioned Sunday evening for your accommodating my schedule and allowing something even as unusual perhaps As a Sunday evening through Tuesday evening gospel meeting, I have greatly enjoyed uh, my time with you. I talked with David earlier this evening. We were able to have supper together, and uh, the trip—the trip up each night has been a blessing. It's—it's been a good trip, a little bit long, but four four lane roads almost all of it, and so that that makes it more convenient. And so that's been nice. It's been nice to get to enjoy uh, brief periods of fellowship with some of you here and there. Maybe little talks or discussions we've been able to have. Of course, you've probably noticed that I don't hang around very long after services. Uh, I'm getting back on the road, and that will probably be the case tonight as well. But God bless you. God keep you from the evil one. And God strengthen you through His Word as you walk the Christian walk and as you serve Him here upon this earth. Now, tonight's emphasis is on youth, but in similar fashion to what I said Sunday night, uh, there are at least two groups of people here tonight to whom this sermon will be pertinent. Number one, those here who are young, the youth. Well, certainly these thoughts will be pertinent to you Uh, Most assuredly, at least I hope they are, or I've not done my job. But then number two, another group of us here tonight are those of us who might not necessarily be young ourselves, but we come in contact with young people. Young people especially who are striving to be Christians who are interested in doing what is right. And so if we fall into that group, these thoughts are pertinent to us also because hopefully they might be of use to us as we try to lend words of encouragement and perhaps even at times admonition to young people around us, young people in our lives whom we care about and whom we want to help in any way we can in spiritually walking in the light. And so tonight, I want us to talk about the idea based from Ephesians 6 and verse 1. Open there if you'd like. Uh, If you were to give this sermon a title, we could simply say, Children, Obey Your Parents. Children, obey your parents. Now, you might be thinking, well, Cliff, that's not very popular in our day and time, and indeed it must not be. I mean, you, you can't go in the grocery store, you can't walk through Walmart, you can't be seemingly in any public place for any length of time without being impressed, not impressed favorably, but without the impression being made on you that respect for parental authority seems to be in diminishing supply in our culture and in our land today. And yet, even if that is indeed the case, I'm here to tell you, and you know this well already, but I'm here to tell you that it matters not. It matters not what is culturally uh, favored. It matters not what is popular among the masses. What matters is what God's Word says. And in Ephesians 6 and verse 1, God's Word says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. I understand that to be in keeping with the Lord's will. You know, when when parents command their children to do things that are sinful, I, I don't know that those children are bound to do those things. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, though our title could be simply, Children, Obey Your Parents, we're going to build our thoughts from that concluding statement, for this is right. Many years ago, I've been preaching now 30 years, and many years ago in my studies and in my preparation for a lesson here or there, perhaps, that that statement stuck out to me. For this is right. You know, God looks down on the youth of the world and he says, children, obey your parents. And and if the idea were that children looked up at God and said, but why, God? Why should I obey mom and dad? God could simply say, this is right. That's what he says in his word. It's the right thing to do. Well, I want to take that thought and I want to springboard from that concept and make our way, as it were, into this study. Open your Bibles all the way back with me to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, and we're going to notice the first three verses of this chapter. Leviticus 19, beginning at verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, as he did throughout the course of the Pentateuch, of course, Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy, and thus, what he wrote are these things that the Lord revealed unto him. So the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I The Lord your God, maybe more literally, for I Yahweh your God am holy. Now notice here the holy nature of God. The word holy means to be set apart. It it, it means to be different. If we were to put it very, very simplistically, God is holy. God is set apart, and that concept it involves ideas of purity. Yes, God is pure. It involves ideas of goodness and righteousness. Yes, God is good and God is righteous. But God is so pure, God is so good, God is so perfectly righteous that God is in a category all His own. All His own. He is completely set apart. And you know what you call that? You call that holy. I think think about those seraphim that we read about in Isaiah chapter 6. Those angelic creatures that had six wings, if you'll remember reading in Isaiah 6. And what did they repeat over and over and over there in the proximity of the throne of Jehovah? Holy, holy, holy. There is none like unto God. God is holy. God is set apart. Now, even though we will not attain to that holiness ourselves, not in that same sense, nonetheless, God tells his people, ye shall be holy. Now, obviously, not to the degree, not in the same sense that God is perfectly holy, but yes, in the sense that if God is separate If God is set apart, if God is specially different, guess what God's people are to be? Separate, set apart, specially different. God told Israel, ye shall be holy. Now, friends, that is the authority of God right there. When God as creator speaks to his people, Israel, the creatures, and God says, ye shall be holy because that's what I am. I'm holy. What you have is you have the idea of authority. God is commanding that. Now, look at the next verse. It strikes me very odd, not really odd, but in a sense odd. That verse 3 follows as it does verse 2. Ye shall fear every man his mother and his father. And keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. It's interesting to me that in this statement, on this occasion, as with so many other occasions... Really, I suppose every occasion in which God speaks, He speaks with authority. But in this one particularly, as God speaks so authoritatively, commanding Israel, you shall be holy, you're going to be my special people, that He immediately ties into that, you shall fear every man, his mother and his father, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Now let's begin with the Sabbaths. What in the world? Why in the world would a nation like Israel, a nation of people, in a world to whom the rest of the world seemingly the first or the last day of the week didn't mean anything? Why would this particular nation, Israel, why would they remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy as we read in Exodus 20 about verse 8? Why? Because God... In his authority, God had commanded that to them. Nehemiah, centuries later, will tell us that God made known to his people Israel, he made known to them his Sabbath, referring to this time period here, the life of Moses in the precincts of Sinai. And so the reason that Israel was to remember a particular day of the week when nobody else in the world would have done that, and really apart from this instruction there was no reason to do that is because of god's authority simply put god told them to do that now what about honoring father and mother Could there possibly be any kind of connection here? We've been talking about the holiness of God. We've been talking about God's Sabbath under the old law. We've been talking about how God's authority can mandate both of these. Do, Do our parents and does our attitude toward our parents have anything to do with that? And I would shout a resounding yes. Yes. You tell me. In what other way, in what other setting, in what other place is a human being to begin learning about the concept of authority? If he or she as a little boy or a little girl does not begin learning about it in the home. If he or she does not learn about authority from mother and Father, then you tell me where do they learn about authority? And any answer you give is going to be accompanied, I suppose, with this refrain, but it will be too late. Oh, I understand. You, you, you have these people sadly, and this is a tragedy, but we have countless souls even in our nation that Because of no mother, no father, no home life and structure to speak of whatsoever. They do. They really do. They grow up seeming to know little or nothing about authority. And they come to learn about it. But they come to learn about it at a time when it is too late. You say, too late? Yeah, if you're learning about it in the penal system, that's too late. If you've already run afoul of the law, then yes, there's a sense in which that's too late. God, in His infinite wisdom, I tell you, God designed the whole. He designed the growth, the intended growth and development of human beings from little babies into mature adults. God designed it so that you and I would learn about the concept of authority from mother and father. And that's why here in verse 3 he says, Ye shall fear every man his mother and father. His Father. So if we build on this, I want us tonight to think about some ways or some similarities would be the right word. Comparisons maybe. Similarities or comparisons that we can draw between our parents and God the Heavenly Father. Now, that's really where we're going tonight. Now, I, I need to say as a caveat or a disclaimer, I suppose, and I've already alluded to this, I, I know, I'm well aware and I'm, I'm saddened by the fact that the ideal situation or the intended situation with which we'll be dealing tonight, there are occurrences in this world in which people do not experience that. I mean, there are some extreme scenarios in which a little child does not have a mother who loves him or her or a father who loves him or her. I know that does happen, okay? But I want you to understand tonight that as we draw these similarities and these comparisons, what we're talking about is what's supposed to be typical. It's what's supposed to be the case. It's what's supposed to be understood and realized. And I apologize on the front end Certainly for all of those cases that would fall short of these comparisons. So, so we say that up front. All right, similarity number one, children obey your parents. Why? Because submitting to parental authority is training me and teaching me to submit to God's authority. That's what it's doing. And so what similarity is there between my parents and my God? Number one, your parents existed before you did and God did too there's the comparison your parents existed before you did and God did too turn over with me to the book of Proverbs let's go to Proverbs chapter 4 interesting passage here no doubt you've read it before hopefully even many many times Notice in Proverbs 4 in verse 1. Hear ye children the instruction of a father and attend to no understanding. You know for the most part this is how the book of Proverbs is written. It is written from the perspective of a father to his son. Maybe described elsewhere as a mentor to his pupil. But but the idea basically is, is this. And so he says, hear the instruction of a father, attend to no understanding. Now why? For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. The word doctrine, teaching. I give you good teaching, forsake ye not my law. But now notice this. This is where it gets really interesting from this perspective. He says, for I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. Now folks... The wise man there, he's not just stating that just to rehearse obvious history. You know, that's not what he's saying. When he says, I was my father's son, I was tender and beloved in the sight of my mother, he's not just recounting the obvious. The reason he states it there is this is his way of saying, I have stood in your shoes. Here I am addressing you as my son. Here you are, the, the pride and joy, pardon that expression, the pride and joy of your mother. Here you are at this point in your life. He says, I want you to know that I too have stood where you presently stand. Years ago, I heard somebody express this, and it, it's impressed me then, and it has stuck with me ever since. See, the difference between parents and children is this. Parents have already been... Where you stand, children, they've already been in your place. But you, as children, have not yet, you've not yet stood in their shoes. And that's that's a fundamental difference. That's a huge difference. And so when, when when parents direct and guide their children, they have the benefit of having been in both scenarios. They've been young before, now they are adults. Children, as we receive this instruction, we only have the advantage of one scenario. We've just, we just know what it's like to be young. We have no idea. We don't have the foggiest notion what it's like to stand on the other side and to be adults. Not yet. I mean, even when we're classed as young adults, we don't have the foggiest notion. We've just not been there, okay? And there's nothing wrong with that. That's not our fault as children or as young adults. That's not our fault. That's just life. That's just the fact of the matter. And so in verse 4, the wise man continued. He says, he, meaning my father, he taught me also and said unto me, let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. And so similarity number one between our parents and our Heavenly Father is that your parents existed before you did. And just like mom and dad, every one of us, our mom and dad, they lived and they existed before we ever discovered America. Well, guess what? God did too. God has pre-existed all of us. Moses would describe God in Psalm 90 and verse 2 as the one from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God, the eternal one. God has always been. God has always existed. But not only that, let's build upon that. Back up with me to the book of Job. Go with me to Job 38. Now the book of Job, as you know, and I hope you know, the book of Job is a marvel. I mean, here's a man who was a righteous man. God clears that up in the opening verses. Okay, God doesn't leave that up to debate. Job is a righteous man. He's a, a perfect, a spiritually mature man. God speaks most favorably of him in chapters 1 and 2. And yet this righteous, godly, exemplary man, his life just, just crumbles his life just crumbles around him. He, he loses ten children. The, the love of his wife his wife, his dear wife, she basically tells him, you ought to just end it all and commit suicide. He loses his physical health. He, he feels, no doubt, as if he's on the precipice of dying. His material possessions. He, he loses his flocks and his herds and his servants. Here's a man who for seemingly now, from Job's perspective, you and I, we have the benefit of having the book. <laughs> so we, we, we're like Paul Harvey used to say, we have the whole story. We, we know the rest of the story. You've got to keep in mind, Job didn't. Job is living his book. And so from his perspective, he doesn't know why all this is happening. He has no idea why all this is happening. Well, to compound matters and to make matters a lot worse, he has some so-called friends—Bill, Dad, and and, Zophar—and one other one. His name escapes me right now. And then Elihu comes on the scene later on. He has these friends that come up, and, and let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that they are well-intentioned friends, but I'm going to tell you, they wind up making a mess out of this situation. And so as we say, adding insult to injury. Well, it, it seems like maybe the more that they talk and the more that they charge Job with, the more agitated, understandably, to a degree that Job becomes. And so it gets to a point that Job even says some things that are really rash, perhaps? And it gets to the point in Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? <laughs> Who, what now? <laughs> counsel, think of counsel as, as wisdom. Darkening something is not a good thing, it's not improving it, it's diminishing it, it's taking away true counsel, it's misrepresenting true wisdom. How does he do this? By words without knowledge. May I paraphrase that? God is asking, who here is misrepresenting wisdom by talking about things that he doesn't know about? The answer is he's he's talking to Job. God says, Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee. You want to ask me questions, Job? Would you like to demand of me certain answers, Job? He says, go ahead and gird up your loins like a man. I'm going to demand of you. I want to ask you a few things and answer thou me. And then we're only going to read the first of these in verse four. But God begins, where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of this, this world? And then God says, declare, you tell me if thou hast understanding. And it it, by the way, it only gets worse from there. It only goes downhill. Now, take this point. Not to the same extent, obviously, no. But in a much smaller degree, every one of our parents, mom and daddy, every one of our parents could look at us and and mine could say, Cleo, where were you when your mother and I did thus and so. When your father and I did this or that. Cliff, where were you? And the answer would be, well, I wasn't born yet, perhaps. Or, or Mommy, you know, you were carrying me around on your hip. Or, see, the, the, the principle, the, the basic principle's the same. Your parents existed before you did. God did too. Perhaps that's one reason why God could say, for this is right. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why, Lord? It's right. All right, point number two. Why? Why obey our parents? Why is that right? Your parents gave you life. God did too. Your parents gave you life. God did too. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23 and let's begin reading at verse 22 Here the wise man says hearken hearken unto thy father that begat begat thee and despise not thy mother when she is old Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous, he shall greatly rejoice. And he that begetteth a wise child shall have joy of him. Thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bear thee shall rejoice. Notice I, I never picked up on this until today. Notice that the end of verse 25 is the bookend to the beginning of verse 22, where we started reading. See, the first bookend, verse 22, Hearken unto thy Father that begat thee. Other translations will read, Thy Father who fathered thee. That sounds redundant. Some translations might even read, Thy Father who gave thee life. And there's a sense There's a sense in which our biological fathers gave us life. Then that other statement at the end of verse 25, that's the bookend talking about the mother. She that bear thee shall rejoice. Here's the point. And the wise man knew it well. You and I know it well and it's just obvious. But it takes a father and it takes a mother for there to be procreated another life. And so there's a sense in which your parents gave you life. You know, we sometimes hear the saying jokingly, I hope it's jokingly given. You know, a daddy telling his boy, he says, son, I brought you into this world and I'll take you out of it. Well, let's hope not on the latter part, but you know what? There's a real sense. The father and the mother, your parents, they gave you life. You're not going to listen to the people who brought you into this world? Really? I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's always what you want to do at first impulse. But when does reason prevail? When does good sense, let's just call it what it is, when does good sense prevail? When does common respect prevail? Your parents gave you life. God did too. Let's go to Acts 17 for that now. Go over to Acts 17. You know the great sermon that the Apostle Paul preached there in Athens. Acts 17 in referring to God, verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, This God dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Seeing he, now notice what God does. He giveth to all life and breath and all things. Now granted, without the power of God, mama and daddy could not have brought you into this world. That's true enough. Mom and daddy were mere instruments. Mom and daddy were used in God's natural plan. It is God who is the giver of life. He giveth all life and breath and all things. Move down to verse 28. For in him, in God, we what? We live. It's in God. It's because of God. It's in connection with God that we live and we move and we have our very being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Yes, I, Cliff Goodwin, am the son of Ken and Eva Goodwin. That's true. But in a more ultimate sense, I, Cliff Goodwin, am the offspring of Almighty God by the way, that's true whether or not Cliff Goodwin is a Christian. This sense right here in Acts 17, 28 is universal. All humanity created in the image of God himself, there is a sense here in which all humanity are the offspring of God. Now, we know that redemptively... We are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. So that's the redemptive sense. But in the universal sense, there's a sense in which all of us are God's offspring. Do you think it's important we learn to respect our parents? Because mom and daddy, they gave us life. Yeah, but God did too. All right, point number three. Your parents nurtured and sustained you when you were utterly helpless. You you need to sit and think about this. And the ancient world and records from the ancient world will attest to this. Not a one of us in here, not a one of us in here tonight would, would have made it. Not a one of us would have lived not a one of us would have survived if somebody didn't take care of us when we were born. Most notably, in most instances, typically, our parents. I mean, when we are born into this world, you want to talk about utter helplessness. That's a human babe. Who fed you, mom and dad? Who kept you clean, mom and dad? Who clothed you and protected you from the elements, mom and dad? Who protected you from other outside perils and dangers, mom and dad? What could you have done for yourself? I can tell you this right here. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. You could have cried and, cried and cried and cried and cried and cried until either you died or until you alerted an enemy to your presence who could have come and taken you and killed you. That's why in the ancient world, if a, if a child was unwanted, what did they do? All they had to do was just leave the baby out. I mean, that's horrific. I know. That's terrible. But that's just the utter helplessness of the human being at birth. And not just at birth, pretty much for several years to come. We wouldn't make it without mom and daddy. Or somebody taking the place of mom and dad. Period. We wouldn't make it. So your parents nurtured and sustained you when you were utterly helpless. But guess what? God did too. God did too. Over in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn over there real quickly. Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus, why, Lord, why? Why would I want to do such nice things to people that hate me? He says that, or in order that, verse 45, ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. According to Acts 14 and verse 17, God is the one who sends fruitful seasons God is the one who fills our hearts with food and gladness. I'm here to tell you, God is the one who nurtures and sustains human life. God is. Every perfect, every good gift comes down from God. Our parents, they did that for us when we were utterly helpless And God is doing that for us right now. Because let me tell you, before Him, you and I are utterly helpless. If it were not for the good things of God, none of us could exist. Do you think we need to obey our parents? Do you think there's anything in the child-parent relationship that's teaching us something about God? Absolutely. 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 Number four. Your parents typically, and again, I gave that caveat at the outset tonight. Your parents typically love you with an unconditional love. God does too. Your parents typically love you with an unconditional love. God does too. You know, I I no longer have my dad My dad passed away back in 2013. That was one of the hardest things in my life. I'm blessed to still have my mother. But something that dad told my sister and me both growing up, I remember this. He said, son, there's nothing that you will ever be able to do that will cause me to not love you anymore and you know that meant something to me then but that means even more to me now unconditional love now I don't want you to misunderstand that to mean that that unconditional love is unconditional acceptance those are two different things okay Unconditional love is not unmitigated endorsement. Two different things. I've told my own children in so many words, I will always love you. Now, there's some things that you can do in your life that will change the nature of our relationship. I've told all my children, I said, you leave the Lord and that will change the nature of our relationship until you come back. But even with that change, that doesn't mean I've stopped loving them. You hear me? Your parents typically love you with an unconditional love. God does too. What did Paul say in Romans 5 and verse 8? But God commendeth. God demonstrated his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners. We were not a noble lot. We were not an upright race. We were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Now if that's not unconditional love, tell me what is. What is? In Ephesians chapter 2, he begins there in verses 1 through 3, describing the, the Ephesians and all unconverted persons, describing them as children of wrath, children of disobedience, children who are walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, referring to the devil, the adversary. He describes him in that way in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But then in verse 4, you have the word but. And he goes on to say, he mentions the great love wherewith God loved us. Now, if that's not unconditional love, I don't know what is. Why is it right, young people? Why is it right to obey your parents? Could it have anything to do with the fact that your parents love you with an unconditional love that is but a small glimpse, just a small glimpse of how your heavenly Father views you? And that in learning to love and respect your parents, you're being fitted to love and respect your God. And then finally tonight, your parents sacrifice More than you know, God did too. You know, (laughs) I'm 47 years old now. I've got three kids, all of whom are practically grown. And over the last 10 or 15 years especially, I guess, maybe the last 20 years, I've looked back at my mom and dad, and I look back at the way I grew up, And the way mom and dad worked. And I have shaken my head. I know I have shaken my head asking myself, how did they do it? You know? I I know roughly at times what mama made and what daddy made at their jobs. And, And I look back how they raised my sister and me. And I'm like, how did they do it? You know, we, we always had a roof over our heads, thank God. We always had food on our tables. I never missed a meal that I recall, never, even came close to missing a meal. We always had food. We always had clothes to wear. They might not have been name brand clothes, but they were clean. That They, they were decent. And I look back and I'm like, how did mom and dad do it? <laughs> well, there's a lot of answers that could be given, but I'll tell you one answer, and that's sacrifice. And I mean, that's just talking about material things. That's that's all there for that part of it. Your parents sacrifice more than you know. That gets back to Proverbs 4. You're in young people's shoes. You've never been in adult shoes yet. And so you stand over here and you look at that and you think you know what's going on. You find out 10, 15, 20 years later, I didn't have any idea what was going on. Now I know what it's like to have a job and to have a mortgage and to have hungry mouths. Now I know what it's like to have a family that's depending on me. And, and wow, how did mom and dad do it? Sacrifice. What about God? Has God sacrificed anything? For God so loved the world that he gave. John 3.16. He gave his only begotten son. Paul would later write in Romans 8 and verse 32, he that spared not his own son. You know, the God who did not withhold, hold back, spare his only begotten son, Paul reasons, he says, how shall he not with him give you, essentially, whatever you need? Whatever you need to be saved and go to heaven, do you really think God's going to hold it back now? That he's committed this deeply at Calvary? I mean, that's razor-sharp logic. That's how the Holy Spirit used logic through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Romans 8 and verse 32. Did God ever sacrifice? In 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 15, there's there's a statement to my knowledge without a prior antecedent. Paul just brings that chapter, what we know is that chapter to a close, by saying, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Well, what's that? Well, I mean, it seems obvious enough. His unspeakable gift must be referring to the gift of his only begotten son. On the cross. Folks, your parents sacrificed more than you know, but the fact is, God did too. Now, we've just looked at five reasons tonight, but are these five not enough? Do these five not give us plenty to ponder, plenty to contemplate in our minds? We have God's Word on the matter. This is right. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Well, I don't know exactly why this is right, perhaps, but I've got five pretty good areas tonight to begin thinking about. All of these ways in which Mama and Daddy, in in their own small glimpses, Mama and Daddy picture my Heavenly Father. (coughs) Surely, by learning to love and appreciate and respect their authority, surely I'm learning something about following God's authority. Thank God for mamas and daddies who love their children and most of all for mamas and daddies who provide for their children spiritually. Thank God. Let's close our Bibles and we'll take our song books. Friends, we're bringing this meeting to a close presently. If there is anyone here tonight having not yet named the name of Christ, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the historical evidence, which by the way, abounds far more historical evidence for jesus christ than there is for george washington the supposed first president of our nation no one i know disbelieves in george washington how in the world could you disbelieve in jesus christ much a much greater preponderance of evidence historically for jesus christ than george washington Do you believe in His death, His burial, and His resurrection for your sins? 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Do you believe strongly enough that you're willing to repent to make the decision to turn away from the practice of sin? Luke 13, 3. Do you believe strongly enough to confess with your mouth, I believe that Jesus is who He said He was, the Son of God. Do you believe strongly enough to unite with Him, to join with Him in His death, His burial, and His resurrection? Well, preacher, how in the world would I do that? By baptism in a watery grave for the purpose of the remission of your sins. Romans 6, 3 and 4, Acts 2 and verse 38. Friend, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you need to do those very things. Brother or sister, if you've done those things, and whether young or old... Whether you're in a home of your own or or whether you're still living in someone else's home, if there is sin in your life, that sin is eroding your relationships, it's damaging and hindering your influence, it's weakening your soul from within. What are you doing? What are you waiting on? Come back. Come back now. Repent of whatever it is. I don't know what it is. I can promise you, though, it's not worth going to hell over. I promise you that. Repent of it. Get out of it. Turn away from it. Give it up. It's junk. It's junk. It's just the world's pseudo alternative to true happiness. That's all sin is. The world's pseudo alternative to true happiness. Come back home, brother. Come back home, sister. Let's end this meeting on a high note with rejoicing one for another as brothers or sisters come back to the Lord. If we can help, please come as we stand and as we sing.